the Fail On Podcast, episode 027. As you know, most startups never get to 10 customers. That's where all, in this idea phase and this testing it or whatever. And so it, you can remove a lot of the, the difficulty and concern and risk because everyone's closing their eyes thinking they're going to build the next big thing. Just trick yourself and say you're trying to build a 10 customer company. You're trying to get 10 customers. You can envision your 10 customers having Thanksgiving dinner with you. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Welcome to the show that believes failing in a hyper-focused way is the only way to achieve your dreams. In a world that only likes to share successes, we dissect the struggle by talking to honest and vulnerable entrepreneurs, and this is a platform for their stories. And today's story is of Clay Bear. Clay is a crowdfunding genius, a marketing strategist, and the creator of the six-word intro. As one of the world's leading crowdfunding experts, Clay has helped over 150 entrepreneurs raise over 50 million dollars on kickstarter and indiegogo clay's trained senior leaders at fortune 500 companies and his speaking clients have included accenture pfizer zappos and just some of the top universities and nonprofits in the world he advises corporations and startups on strategy marketing innovation and culture he's just a really really smart guy and really well liked by pretty much everyone but we'll be discussing how clay was able to transition to entrepreneurship after nine years of management consulting in the corporate world He'll be sharing how to make important life decisions based on your future calendar and not your best idea, and a simple focus strategy based on factors of 10 to build your customer base and business, and how Clay would start a brand new business today with limited funds and resources. But first, I have a lot of travel coming up, and luckily, all I need to travel with, travel with is a backpack for one reason only. It's a shirt from a beautiful Toronto apparel company called Unbound Merino. They've got clothes made out of merino wool, and get this, you can wear it for months without ever needing to have it washed. You probably should wash it, but <laughs> you could do it. Talk about a traveler's absolute dream, though. Never check a bag again. It just really cuts down on everything you need to take when you go on when you go on travel or vacation or holidays. But check it out at the show notes page for an exclusive fail-on discount that you won't be able to get anywhere else. And if you'd like to stay up to date on all the Fail On podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com. So obviously, I want to go into crowdfunding hacks and everything you're doing in that realm, and obviously some of your current projects. But I'd love for you to take us back to really the first time that somebody actually gave you money in exchange for a proctor service that you created. Yeah, absolutely. I remember it well. I was freezing my butt off. It, maybe this doesn't count because I didn't create the candy bars, but this was in elementary school when they gave you the candy bars to go sell. And I was determined to win that alarm clock. You know, Looking back, it was probably a $10 or $15 alarm clock, so I could have just gotten there a lot easier. But I knew if I sold like seven boxes of candy bars. So I'd go to the local grocery store, middle of winter in Wisconsin. We'd go there, you know, at night, after school, after practice, it's dark, it's cold, bundle up, asking, you know, accosting every person who comes in the in the door in the grocery store if they want to buy a candy bar. And it was really my first marketing lesson. You know, I didn't, didn't know all the words and hadn't read all the books at the time about, you know, permission and spam, human spam and all that stuff. But what I did figure out is they weren't buying the candy bar they were the kind of person who supports a little kid who's freezing his ass off, who's selling a candy bar. And so I went from my first marketing lesson to my first marketing tactic slash <laughs> scam slash whatever. <laughs> I brought a duffel bag of my brother's clothes and I would wait. I would sell, I would sell candy bars for, you know, two hours or until frostbite set in. And I realized that, you know, on, a, on any, any given night after a certain number of people who were the kind of people who, you know, who bought a candy bar. Like I said, none of them were interested in the actual chocolate overpriced candy bar. They were just like, ah, oh, here's this kid. So when about four or five of them would go in in the span of, you know, before they came out, I would run around the corner, change clothes, change into my brother's clothes, go stand at the other exit door <laughs> and wait for those people to leave the grocery store Brilliant. and hit them up again. And they would buy on the way out again, not because they wanted a candy bar. Cause they're like, oh, here's this 
sad little kid selling candy bars for a school. So that was uh, first marketing lesson and first marketing sort of a tactic. And just for context, where, where was that at? Because you said frostbite. Yeah, yeah. Small town, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I grew up in a, in a town, not tiny town, about 60,000 people, West Central Wisconsin called Eau Claire. And it was Kerm's grocery store in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I was probably about seven years old. That's amazing. So just in terms of, obviously, this is the Fallon podcast, and you learned your lessons early on selling candy bars. It's actually funny because I totally forgot. I, I did the same stuff, right? Yeah, like sure. It was the same. I don't know what it was. I think it was mainly for sports teams, not for school. Yep. But yep. that was typically what it was. And you'd sell, yeah, like you said, these oversized candy bars that were like $5 oh, a yeah, piece. Yeah. <laughs> like was, oh, go in the grocery <laughs> store and get it for like 50 cents. Oh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Not the best uh, place to, you know obviously, you know, they're overpriced. They're about to walk into yeah. a place, like you said, to a place. I, I saw a story last year that I thought was hilarious. Maybe it was a couple of years ago. This Girl Scout, you know, Girl Scout cookies were just sold in their annual drive. And this Girl Scout just blew away all the records, all the sales records or whatever, because she set up outside of a legal dispensary. Uh, Amazing. <laughs> people going in, so buying their marijuana, and they walk outside, <laughs> and here's this cute girl with a car table. And of course, she just blew away all the sales records. So another marketing lesson, you know, context and place matters. See, we should be studying from kids. I know. Right? <laughs> they, yeah. they know how to pull the heartstrings. That's right. So how do you actually view success and failure? Interestingly, so I see them as inextricably linked. You cannot have success without many, many failures. Failures are sort of like the bricks you have to stand on to reach the mountain of success. There's a poem I love. I'm not a huge poetry guy. I'm kind of trying to read some more and figure out if I like it. But but um, there's one that I absolutely love called um, If by Rudyard Kipling. And in there, there's a line about success and failure. And he talks about treating those two imposters just, just the same. And I love that line because in our world, especially now with all the entrepreneur porn that's out there and, you know, all this, you know, Shark Tank and all the, all the stuff about, you know, s celebrating people, over celebrating mm -hmm. people's successes and over destroying people's failures. That simple line from a, from an old, old poem about success and failure are both imposters, meaning if you succeed, it doesn't mean you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And if you fail, it doesn't mean you're a horrible person. But I think there's such a stigma attached to failure. And that's why, I mean, that's why this podcast exists. It's why you're doing this to help lift that. But yeah, the, it's, it's, it, it all comes back to the media because the media loves to celebrate. Well, they love to build you up so that they can tear you down, right? That's what gets clicks. It's a click-based, you know, media uh, business model. And, you know, you're, you're a sports guy. I'm a sports guy. I think it's fascinating. I grew up, you know, watching Michael Jordan. I was I was younger, but you know, watching watching him succeed and win his championships. He was, you know, by far the most popular sports, you know, player on the planet. Now, if you look, the most liked athlete and the most hated athlete are the same person, and it's LeBron James. Totally. And that's not because of LeBron James. If you compare LeBron James to Michael Jordan for, kind of from an off-the-court perspective, LeBron's a saint, right? He hasn't done anything. He's a family, family guy. Family guy, yeah. kid, like never, never at the club, never DY, right. no, nothing. He's squeaky clean. LeBron's worst thing he ever did was not even that he went to Miami, just the way he announced it. And it still raised a ton of money for boys and girls clubs. So like the media loves to build you up and tear you down. And just the fact that LeBron is the most loved and the most hated at the same time, that tells you all you need to know because... It's kind of like you can have all the all the success in the world, and they're just looking, needling for for things. But yeah, to remove the the stigma of failure, I actually why do you think, just on that point, yeah. though, why do you think that is with LeBron specifically? Because like I was obviously younger, yeah, but I remember watching Michael Jordan play, and by far my favorite athlete to watch, other than Tiger Woods, sure. But I didn't, I don't remember that stigma with Michael Jordan, like people nitpicking at him and what no, he no, did No, no, there wrong, wasn't. That right? was, that's exactly my point is back then there were just fewer media channels. Got it, yeah. And not everyone could have a blog. Not everyone right. could tweet their opinions. But now everybody has a voice, so everybody Everyone's has a an voice. opinion. So, if you, yeah, if you decide you don't like LeBron, you can have your platform. And, yeah. and that, it's good that those gatekeepers are gone, but the click view-based media who, you know, you've probably seen in our entrepreneurial world, there's lots of people trying to start 
they know that the news tends to be generally negative, right? Yeah. If it bleeds, it leads, right? Old school old journalism saying. And there's lots of people in this world trying to start newspapers of only good news and only right. look at this great thing that's happening. And I just kind of shake my head. It's sad. It's unfortunate. But those are never going to, you know, compete against the big media, the clickbait. And, and now you see it with Upworthy and BuzzFeed and these, these click things. And it's just literally trash. It's just literally, you know, can you ever remember a listicle that changed your life? You know, they get the most likes and the most shares. But, you know, 10 Chrome plugins that blah, blah, blah. Nobody ever remembers, oh, man, that what's the one thing that changed your life? Well, there was this BuzzFeed listicle. Never. It never happens. So take us back. So obviously selling candy bars. Take us through the journey of where you kind of came up and entered entrepreneurship for the first time outside of obviously the small scale stuff as a kid. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was interesting for me because we watched my dad. I had two brothers in the middle. We're all three years apart. And we watched my dad. My dad was an entrepreneur. He owned a, a furniture store in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And, you know, nobody had ever taught him about business or marketing. He was an engineer by trade. So he knew really well about the engineer and how the pieces fit together and all that stuff, but not about sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. He was naturally a good kind of sales guy and customer service guy. But me and my two brothers saw him be an entrepreneur. And over years, you know, that business didn't work. It, it sort of failed slowly over a lot of years. Um, he had a lot of overhead and things like that. So as we were watching this, you know, we're sort of, you, you know, how observant kids are. We were basically like, okay, dad is really smart. Dad is really hardworking. And the entrepreneurship thing didn't work. Therefore, we're not going to be entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So even in junior high, we kind of had this, we're going to go seek out the safe, stable, long-term job. So all three of us did. Um, went to college. I went to uh, Accenture right out of college. Big, largest consulting firm in the world. I think nowadays they employ over 400,000 people, which is a, a nation, not a, co- <laughs> not a company. And yeah, so so like I, I remember it was 1999. I, I just started Accenture. I kind of looked around and I asked my uh, a partner that I worked with. I said, you know, how much do partners make? He's like, oh, new partner makes like 1.2 million. Now, I just mentioned Michael Jordan. Scotty Pippen was kind of my favorite player growing up because I just had to choose somebody other than Jordan. <laughs> and the only person I knew who had a decimal in their salary was Scotty Pippen or my sports heroes, right? I didn't know anyone personally yeah. who made something point something a year. And then I said, how long does it take to make partner? And he said, oh, about, you know, 12, 13 years. So I spent the next six months or a year looking around. I'm like, these guys aren't that smart. They're not that amazing. Like in 12 years, I should be able to be doing what they're doing. It wasn't. So then uh, mentally I had hunkered down. It wasn't like I was like, I'm staying. I'm I'm riding this horse as long as they'll have me. I'm going for the brass ring and, and doing that. And so I stayed. And then over that period of time, a lot of things changed. The company went public and the salary for partner went down, down, down. And the difficulty in making partner went up, up, up. So in end of 2008, beginning of 2009, I was, try, I was living out here in San Diego and I was trying to look for uh, a different path out of the big corporate. I was almost partner, but that's not the life I wanted. Yeah. I knew a lot of people that were wealthy and unhappy. And I had I had read Seth Godin's stuff back in 2003, 2004, read Purple Cow, went down the rabbit hole, started doing that nights and weekends. And so at the end of 2008, uh, Seth blogged about an opportunity to study with him. So I applied and I was fortunate and got in his MBA program. First time he'd ever done it in New York. And I, I quit my job at Accenture. How many, how many years had you been at Accenture at that point? Nine. Okay. Nine so and a half, were, ten. Yeah. You were there for a while. Yeah, I was almost partner. The next promotion was partner. Mm. Probably, that was probably about a year for making partner. And so it was tough, even though, you know, I'd been reading about that other, this other world that I was so excited to join. We still get told so much from society about, you know, get the safe, stable job, do everything, do everything. And, and I literally saw my friends, you know, a few years ahead of me who made partner traveling on the road, super stressed, unhealthy, getting divorced, hating their lives. And it's like, your bank account is not worth that. So, but I, it was hard because I couldn't actually, I have told many people this, I applied to be director of marketing at Callaway Golf out here in San Diego in 2008 but rightfully they said dude you have no marketing experience like you're a management (laughs) consultant you're like you know you're an Accenture guy where what have you done for marketing and I couldn't say well I've all read all the right books and blogs right so escaping that world and going to study with Seth was was uh, just a once in a lifetime experience and getting to learn from him and and keep in touch with him and continue to learn from him has been amazing so then after that I, I hung on a shingle and started helping uh, initially individuals and authors with marketing and then medium-sized companies and then Fortune 500 companies. Just based on the knowledge that you 
got from working with Seth and obviously reading the books and educating yourself, that was enough to say, okay, now I'm going to actually work with these successful people, these successful authors and actually handle their marketing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, as far as handle it, I always stayed away from, cause I just came from, like I said, like the biggest, you know, consultant, consulting and agency right. work is the same kind of thing. You know, you have an army of doers and you build a client X and you pay them 0.5 X, mm. you know, is, is kind of the model. And I just came from the largest version of that ever. So I didn't want to build in 2009, right after the Seth program, I could have built, you know, a 20 person digital social marketing agency yeah. pretty easily in New York. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to stay on the strategy side, mm. do speaking, do workshops, teach, teach Amanda fish, because I really believe conceptually as well. Same with crowdfunding, same with marketing that they should do it themselves. You know, I can come in and teach them how to do it, but I really think like you can't hire someone to do your sit-ups for you and you shouldn't hire someone to do your marketing for you. Right. That's a good point. Like, cause I went through this, I went through this stage probably two years ago where my business was starting to make a lot of money and I'm like, I wanted to start a different company, a skincare company at the time. And I was like, I'm just going to hire all these people to handle all the stuff that I don't want to deal with without trying to dig in and learn it myself first. Yeah. So I was trying to hire all these experts, come in, create the sales letter for me, blew 50 K wow. didn't, didn't do one sell. Wow. Didn't do one sell. Yeah. So it's, it's a very valuable lesson to yeah. uh, teach a man to fish because I would, it would have, I would have been way better off and more educated on how to actually find that expert if I had dug in and known what to look for on, you know, if I'm even going in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's so much about marketing is, it's fundamental. It, it hasn't changed. We're humans. The way we think about this, it's not like the tools are new, but the tools are the tail at the end of the dog. You got to understand the whole strategy. Everyone's like, oh, well, <laughs> basically, if, if you don't have a rock solid, fundamental, good marketing strategy, Snapchat's not going to save you. Right. Facebook ads are not going to save you anything. They're, they're tactics that may or may not work. But if you don't even know why they work, flowing from a really solid strategy. So that's what I, when I teach companies and go in for a day for a workshop or whatever, I have this framework I call the 10 magic marketing questions and how will they hear about you? doesn't come till question number eight. Mm. So like there's seven questions before that of foundation. What's the story we're telling? Who's the customer? What do they already believe? Does our story that we're telling one of my favorite brand stories is Yeti coolers. It's a cooler. Like it keeps your food cold and that's been around forever and it's been a commodity product. Like if there would have been a business school challenge or some entrepreneurial challenge like eight years ago, that's like you need to start a half billion dollar cooler company. That would be super hard because it's a commodity product, right? But they built a brand and they hung stories around it like, hey, it's grizzly proof and it's this and it's that. And they really came out of nowhere in the last, you know, eight years and they're going to be a billion dollar company selling essentially a commodity product uh, because of the ability of branding and marketing. Yeah, it's nuts. So after leaving Seth's program, going into actually starting services and products for people, what was one of those first failures where you're like, should I actually be doing this? Like, did you run into that? Like mm -hmm. kind of the imposter syndrome at all? Or what were those initial struggles starting out? Yeah, the, the first one was probably right before I left Accenture and went to the Seth program. I was, I was really trying to hustle this stuff nights and weekends on the side. So, uh... A friend slash colleague from one of the software vendors we worked with at Accenture and I, you know, he was also into startups and, and technology and stuff like that. And so we built a failed startup called Blogly, B-L-O-G-G-L-E-Y. And the concept was these, you know, small-ish bloggers um, don't have enough page views to attract legit, you know, banner ads and, right. and advertisers and things like that. But if we build a network of blogs, right, then we then we can. And this was before a lot of the blog networks were really big but we we were distributed we both had our day jobs which were taking up you know it's Accenture so it's you know 40 hours a week it's like 55 hours a week and so it was really truly a part-time thing we both threw a little bit of money into some development really had no clue what we were doing didn't know anything about you know Eric Reese and the Lean Startup hadn't come along so I didn't know about customer development validation testing all that stuff um, and it was we were really just we had no clue what we were doing and it was, it was an absolute failure. We didn't have one customer. We didn't even have a, a functioning product. We had a concept and a dream and it was all exciting. And right. there was enough entrepreneur stuff out there at the time that we were both really excited and, you know, dreams of cash and big checks or whatever, but we had no clue. We didn't. And then a couple of years later I met Dan Martell and he taught me about, you know, 
got me down the, the rabbit hole of lean startup and Eric Ries and customer development and mm. landing pages and validation and testing and talking to your customers. And that just totally flipped my world around. But yeah, the bloggly was an ultimate failure. So you look back after talking to Dan and getting, <laughs> getting more knowledge and oh, like, yeah. what was I doing back then? Oh, absolutely. It was, it was brutal. I realized how much I didn't know, but you know, you gotta, um, you gotta learn what you don't know. Yeah. So for somebody that's, because I think it's an interesting point, right, where you decided to leave Accenture mm -hmm. and actually make the leap. Because I think there's a lot of people out there that are probably in a comfy corporate job, yeah. making good money, maybe going for partners, same thing. Right. But they have the itch and they know they want to do their own thing, but they're just scared. Or yeah. They don't know how to start. They don't know how to make that leap or if they even should. Yeah. How did you get to the point? Obviously, I think you're, you're probably making good money with Accenture at the yeah. time, right? Yeah. That, that far in. So you probably had reserves and whatnot. Did you choose to leave Accenture after you already had something working and going? Or was it just a burn the ships? I don't care how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. So the way the timing worked was I had been talking about Seth Godin inside of Accenture for years after, you know, I was trying to beat the drum and say, hey, this, here's this innovative thinking that we've been talking about. So when I applied and I got into his program, I looked at my options. I said, instead of burning the ships, do I have any other options? And one of the options is you can take a six months leave of absence you know, for no, no reason, you're still an employee, you're still in the system, you just don't get a, you don't get a paycheck. And so I did that for the six months of the Seth program. So I did a leave of absence. And then even after the Seth program, and after spending that much time, you know, looking back, it seems silly to me that it was a hard decision. But at the time, you know, like I said, there's so much societal pressure of oh, yeah. what are you crazy? There, it's funny, the span of, of people's opinions good friends who knew me well and had heard me talking about it. They're like, wow, what an amazing opportunity. That's like, you know, if Steve Jobs said, do you want to come hack in my basement for six months? Like, right. that's amazing. You're courageous and bold and yeah, like, good for you for going for it. And what an opportunity, right? right. They knew who he was in that world. Yeah. And other people were like, well, it's not an accredited program. And it's not, <laughs> what are you doing throwing away this almost partner career to go? Literally one person said, to go do an unpaid internship with this bald guy in New York. <laughs> like that was the, that was the phrase. And it's interesting yeah, because yeah. it just shows, you know, the, the span of, of sort of worldview of, of the people. And, and, you know, both people, both sides, they thought they had my best interest in mind, right? The people on the, the latter people, even though they were totally off the mark, thought they were doing the best thing for me, right? They're right. like the safe, stable job. Cause that's what they've been taught as well. So I forget, I forget the question. We we went out. Well, I guess what would you say? What would you say to somebody that's in that position? Oh, that right. You were yeah. at Accenture, yeah. that they know they want to do something. Maybe they don't know what. Yeah. But what would you? So, what kind of advice would you give them based on what you've went through? So two things. One, what really helped me in the moment is, I sat down with a friend, and when I was really after the Seth program, I was going to cut the cord. You know, burn the ships, like you said. Send send Accenture the email that said, I'm not coming back. I'm starting my own thing. I'm starting from scratch, zero clients, zero revenue, zero health insurance, just starting. And one of my friends said, you know, you clearly obviously really want to do this. So what's holding you back? And I talked to him about it. And he said one simple thing that just changed everything and made like lifted the stress and the freedom. He said, well, do you think they would take you back? They said, you put in nine and a half good years at Accenture if you left to go try this entrepreneurial thing and it doesn't work and you burn through savings and you can't get a customer and every worst case scenario. And then you go back to Accenture and say, can I get hired at the level I was at when I left? Do you think they would take you back? And I said, yeah, of course, absolutely. He's like, what's the risk then? Yeah. They essentially removed all of the risks just by that simple thing of saying, would they take you back now? Nowadays with the economy, with the way things are going, I don't think that's necessarily the case for everyone, but it's worth exploring. The other big thing is make the leap, not a leap. So imagine the visual of a leap. So let's say you're standing on a box at your CrossFit and it's you know 50 feet in the air and you're jumping off of it. That's a leap. You might twist your ankle, you might break your leg, you hurt your back, whatever. Well, if you can make the box lower or you can make the floor higher, well, now it's not such a big deal. And so we have these tables right here. You and I wouldn't be scared to jump off this table onto this floor. There's going to be no injury that's going to happen. We know how to do that. Well, what if you can build it up so that it's evil, so it's even and you can just step from one to the other or step off a curb. So my advice to anyone thinking about, well, should I do it? Should I make the leap, et cetera? If you are telling yourself that you can't build up the side hustle nights and weekends, you're lying to yourself. You're hiding by being scared by not building up your thing. So now with what we know about Lean Startup and landing pages and testing and validation and getting your idea out there, talking to customers, there's all these ways, you know, do your day job. Don't, here's my advice. Don't quit your day job until you've completely validated your side hustle. And maybe, 
when you're making more from your side hustle than you are from your day job, right? So let's just say round numbers, you make 50 grand in your day job. Don't quit your day job until your side hustle is bringing in 25,000 or or same as your salary, right? Because as you know, between nights, weekends, everything else, if you can't validate it somewhat, if you can't bring in some level of money dedicating nights and weekends, it's a bad idea and you shouldn't quit your job anyway and you should move on to idea number two. Right. And what makes you think you're going to be able to you know, just have those daytime hours to actually make it work if you yeah. can't make it work in the off hours. Yeah, absolutely. Got it. So that was obviously your first failure with Blogly. What's What's been really like the most painful failure though? The one where it was like hurt in your stomach and you didn't know that how you would ever be able to recover from it. Yeah. I think I, I tried to build a, a technology startup a few years ago called Spindos and I got the business model completely wrong. I did some things well. It was essentially the original vision for it was video speed networking for the Fortune 500. So I left Accenture, this massive, huge company, and I realized I knew about 100 people. You and I meet 100 people at a conference some right. days, right? And I'm like, how is it after a decade at this massive firm I only knew 100 people? There's no, in these massive, massive, massive corporations, there's no great way to discover like you and I could work literally in the San Diego office of Accenture. And if you're in government and I'm in healthcare, we'd never meet each other, even if we had a million interests in in common. And so I built this thing that was video speed networking uh, for, for companies, but I I followed the Dan Martell, Eric Ries, lean startup advice, built the screens, didn't build any code, stitched it Mm -hmm. together, you know, prototype, et cetera, and showed it to all these, all these companies. And it was interesting. I was about 80% wrong with the vision of what they actually wanted. They didn't care about video speed networking. They did care about discovering who their colleagues are. So Google mm-hmm. Google for colleagues, yeah. searching inside of Accenture and saying, who in the Chicago office plays golf and knows marketing? That they loved. But the biggest mistake or failure was not realizing that if that was the kind of company I wanted to build, it had to look like Slack. I had to like go raise a bunch of money, go full bore, hire hundreds of people, and build a real enterprise right. sales company. I thought I could do that in this kind of lifestyle bootstrap SaaS three employees kind of kind of deal, and it didn't work. And so at the, at the time, I was also sort of becoming the you know marketing and crowdfunding guy, and uh, and it was tough because I, I again I had to sit down. It was a different friend, but a, a, sit, a sit down conversation with a different friend, and he said something really insightful. He said, "Well, he, he said either one's going to be successful. You just have to." to choose which one you're going to build. He goes, even though Spindos looks good and you're getting some good validation, if you choose that, the next 10 years of your life looks like this. If you choose to be the crowdfunding guy, the marketing expert and the strategist, the lone wolf, you know, speaking in workshops and stuff, then your life looks like this. Which one do you want? And and it, it was really hard because I was, again, so excited about that idea about, you know, building that kind of company. And, right. and, and you know, I was, I was really excited about selling it and connecting, connecting the people like, like, building something that you know would be on the cover of magazines and like finally somebody built google for colleagues right. right finding all the connections in these big companies and it's it's a problem that still hasn't been solved you know but but that was uh it didn't align with what your life what you wanted your life to look like yeah yeah exactly and and nowadays i when i you know coach entrepreneurs and coach other people i, I talk to them i say don't choose it based on whether you think it's going to be successful we we make so many decisions so all the time in our world about is it going to work should I do this kind of podcast? What should the name be? Da, da, da. Choose it based on what you want your calendar to look like. Like you're kind of excited. You're smiling here right now and you have multiple interviews lined up today and you're cranking them out today. And this is a good day for you. Like yeah. you're in the studio, you're loving it. And so your day, your calendar looks good and your week and your month and your year. And so that's one thing I, I talk to people about is the perfect calendar is tell me what you want your year to look like and let's reverse engineer that. Assuming the business is going to be successful because what was it just last week or whatever, another, you know, $50 million net worth and committed suicide because he was just unhappy, stress, New York City, you know, he was like, yeah. walk through Central Park with Henry Paulson. It's like, the if we have enough, en- we have a pile of studies like that, of, of examples like that of people with, with the millions and millions and millions who are ridiculously unhappy. And so I say work backwards from the calendar. So is your greatest lesson in that failure? Yeah just actually defining what you want before you start building something. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And if I would have, in the very beginning, I was, uh, you know, I, I love the the quote, you know, fall in love with the problem, not your version of the solution. Mm-hmm. But if I was really, truly honest with myself and said, to do this right, it's going to look like Salesforce or Yammer or Slack or one of these big enterprise companies. Right. 
otherwise don't start, right? There's another great book by Seth called The Dip, which is all about quitting early, have that discussion, have that coffee discussion, and then decide if that's what you're going to go down. But when you go, go all in, right? I'm a, I'm a poker player. And when you go on, you push all your chips in the middle and you either win or, or you lose. And I was spinning too many plates. And it's a problem that I still have. It's something I still struggle with is because of the way my mind works, because of the way I think about marketing and startups and everything else, I, I you know, we joke about, you know, Dave Asprey or Ben Greenfield and the orange goggles. I go through the world with marketing goggles on of everything is broken and I want to fix it and what an opportunity that would be. Mm-hmm. And now that I know what it takes or doesn't take to spin up an app or a startup or something like that. It's everything is just popping as like opportunities (laughs) to do things. And so one of my biggest focuses and and failures and things I'm not very good at on a day-to-day basis is tuning out all that noise and just looking down at the one project that I have to ship and I have to finish, you know, Mm. there's, I love the book, uh, the war of art by Stephen Pressfield, where he really personifies the resistance and, one of them is, you know, you get to mile 22 of the marathon, you know, and, and a marathon's great because there's rails and there's people right. <laughs> cheering and you're, you're on that path. Water breaks. And- yeah. But my marathon all the time is I get to mile 22 and then I'm like, oh, squirrel, new, new project, new, <laughs> new thing, new, <laughs> right. new talk, whatever. It's a great book, by the way. Yeah. So for somebody, I think, because I think you have the opposite problem, maybe, maybe, maybe not of a lot of people that are trying to get started. Yeah. Whereas, and you see opportunity in almost everything yeah. because you notice the problems. You've probably built that muscle after a while. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are, they might get a lot of ideas, but they're looking for that perfect idea, right? Of this is, I got to have this perfect idea if I'm going to quit my job and start a business. And that's obviously a huge fallacy, right? It doesn't right. exist. There's no right. perfect business. It's what's the first business? Yep. Let's start there. So for somebody that knows they're going to, they want to make the leap, but they don't know what business to start or what it might be. What advice would you give to that person to actually discover how to start a business or what idea to go with? Yeah, it's a great question. You're hundred percent right. There is no perfect idea. And in fact, it's a, it's become a very good litmus test for me over the years. Um, Cause now I've dealt with a lot of really successful entrepreneurs and a lot of really rookie entrepreneurs and everyone in between, the more value they place on the initial idea before they have a customer, before they have revenue, before they have anything, the more rookie the entrepreneur is, right? Will you, Clay, will you sign this NDA before I ask you some questions? I'm like, no, I'm helping you for free or whatever. I'm, you know, I'm not going to sign your NDA because I'm not going to protect your shitty little idea. (laughs) You know, uh, it's a good point. Yeah. You know, ideas, ideas are basically worthless. Everyone's like, oh yeah, my uncle had the idea for Facebook before. Yeah. Well, he didn't do it. You know, maybe he did have the idea. Great. He can email Mark and say, thanks for building my idea. But (laughs) you know, ideas are not worth the powder to blow them to hell ideas get glorified again, back to the whole media thing. We love talking about because looking backwards, you know, hindsight, it's easy to say, Oh, I had that brilliant idea. You want to hear a crazy shitty idea. Let's throw air mattresses down on our floor and let strangers stay in our home. Right? No, nobody knows air in Airbnb stands for air mattress Mm -hmm. as in throw it on the floor of your living room and let people crash. That's how Airbnb got started. So looking backwards, it's a great idea in the moment. Insane. And, major super smart people like Chris Saka, you know, VC investor in, in everything. He looked at that and he was like, that's an insane idea. People are going to get killed and you're, you know, like it's, it's just going to, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. And it's Airbnb. <laughs> right, right. So like the value of an idea, it's the advice I would give is one, 10, a hundred, a thousand. One, get your first customer, your first non friend or family member giving you ideally money, but at the very least their email address to follow up to hear more. So to even get to that point, you have to be able to effectively articulate what's the problem, what's the solution, how are you going to solve their problem? Do they even have that problem? Mm. Do they have that problem and they know they have that problem? Because some people have problems, but they don't know they have that problem, right? Uh, Seth always used to say, count how many miracles it has to take. If if in your business plan, you're explaining the whole thing to me and there's four steps, we're like, and then miracle happens and then blah, 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 you know, being honest with yourself. But one, 10, so then you have one. Then can you get to 10? Can you get to 10 customers? Which is a huge milestone. Huge milestone. Every company that's successful, Airbnb, Dropbox, Evernote, Bonobos, they all at one point had one customer and they all at one point had 10 customers. Mm. As you know, most startups never get to 10 customers. That's where all, in this idea phase and this testing it or whatever. And so you can remove a lot of the the difficulty and concern and risk because everyone's closing their eyes thinking they're going to build the next big thing. Just trick yourself and say you're trying to build a 10-customer company. You're trying to get 10 customers. You can envision 
your 10 customers having Thanksgiving dinner with you, right? 10 people that are paying you money. That is such a massive milestone for most startups. And once you have 10, if they all bring 10, now you have 100 and you're off to the races, right? So are are your customers telling their friends, telling their customers? Because the reason we buy things is because of the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, right? Yeah. Again, Seth has this great riff called uh, people like us do things like this. And I think that's marketing boiled down to just a few words, right? Um, Yeti coolers, right? Most people don't buy Yeti coolers, but the people that do, people like us do things like this, meaning we have a Yeti cooler. We don't have a Coleman cooler from Walmart, right? right? And brands and Christian Louboutin, red sole shoes, you know, that is marketing. And so if your customers are not bringing in other customers, you won't grow. None of us, not the biggest companies in the world have enough marketing funds to reach everyone individually if the story doesn't spread. So be honest with yourself about how the story spreads. Mm. And so for, yeah, for an entrepreneur out there who's thinking about starting an idea, just literally just one in 10, get one customer that's paying you money, one stranger, not your mom, and then 10. And once you get to 10, then figure out how to get the story to spread to get to a hundred. And if you get a hundred, you know, email Rob, (laughs) you win. (laughs) No, I love that. It's, uh, it's super simple, right? It's a good way to start, but how do you, how would somebody assess risk on that? Or how would you assess risk on that in terms of getting that first customer or getting to 10? Cause if you get to 10, like you said, you might have something. Mm-hmm. So do the people need to sink 5,000, you know, $10,000 into building no, something? $0. Okay. Your only risk is a little bit of time and then your ego. Can you just run us through a hypothetical? Let's say, I don't know, any yeah. business, right? You're starting from scratch. You have the you know, you don't have the skills or knowledge you have, but you have right five hundred bucks, a thousand bucks to get started. Yeah, how would you use zero dollars to actually yeah. build something to get ten customers? Absolutely. So let's say, let's say you're building a product for moms, and it's a really cool new thing to to help them with their strollers or, or something something with their kids, some some physical product to help moms with their kids. I would take the hundred dollars. I would go to Starbucks and buy $25 gift cards at Starbucks. And then I would sit there with my laptop or my iPad or my prototype. And you got to have a visual. You got to have a visual of it. So maybe you take uh, another $100 and go on online on Fiverr, one of these sites, and have uh, a CAD person, you know, draw up a beautiful visual of, this, of the thing. And it's a little bit hustle, a little bit spam, maybe. You can, or find, you know, women in Central Park who, are, who are, have strollers who are, are watching their kids or whatever and just be like, hey, c- can I buy your coffee for just, just a minute of advice, just a quick reaction? And half of them will say yes, hand them a $5 Starbucks gift card. Now you just bought their coffee mm-hmm. and show them the 3d rendering of your thing and be like, I'm not even going to tell you what it is, what it does. What do you think? What's your reaction? Right. Test validate. I used to mentor for startup weekend in New York and it was funny. My main job was to, you know, in Lean Startup, they called G-O-O-B, get out of the building. Because these developers and coders, right, they think in JavaScript and they can do amazing, brilliant things with code. So when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when you're a developer, everything, the solution, everything looks like code. Yeah. So my job was to literally throw them out of the building, out of the Microsoft offices, into Central Park and say, go talk, go find your customers. I want you to come back with five emails of people who want this thing. So, yeah, the money, it's not about the money. It's about can you get... 50 emails. And then can you ask those people, if I build this, would you be interested? And that's where crowdfunding, like crowdfunding can bring the cost of failure to zero. Right. Now the platform is not going to magically bring you all the people. You have to like build the landing page, build the stuff. But yeah, I would effectively explain the problem and the solution. I think that's another, it's another issue for people. Like we talked about, you want the magic five-step process on how to do this and right. then you'll have a business, right? right. Which doesn't exist. So People, I think people struggle with the idea of you actually have to go hustle yeah. a little bit. You have to get out because for a lot of people, talking to five people at Starbucks or ten people at Starbucks is out of their comfort zone. Yeah, no, that's and exactly you have right. to talk to people. You have to. I mean, that's. I think before you do anything, you have to get comfortable getting uncomfortable. Exactly. Doing stuff that you don't typically do because if you want a business that you don't have, you have to do things that you don't currently do. Exactly. No, you you nailed it. Getting comfortable getting uncomfortable is exactly it. That's why, you know, the, the, there's all these health benefits of cold showers and ice baths and all this other stuff. The actual health benefits, yeah, whatever. There's some. <laughs> the mental, biggest benefit right? is mental of if I can sit in an ice bath or if I can take a cold shower when it'd be much more comfortable to take a hot shower, then I can do things that are uncomfortable, which is I can go make five sales calls. 
I can go test my sales script or I can hire a coach to get better at that thing, right? We don't hire personal trainers because we don't know how to do an arm curl. We hire a personal trainer to make us show up. And so the next place I might spend some of that, you know, $5,000 is on someone to teach sales or, or a book, you know, I'd spend and spend $0 on a library card or the internet. My God, Google, Yelp, Udemy, or not Yelp, Udemy and Creative Live, all these courses. There's nothing that you can't learn for free on YouTube. And if you pay a little bit of money, Creative Live or Udemy or one of these uh, will will package it for oh, yeah. you in, in a beautiful thing. Seth's current online program called the Alt MBA, you know, he took what we did in 2009 in person in six months and he's spent years figuring out how to effectively package that online and the result is just brilliant. It's a month-long course literally with the goal of exactly what you just said, which is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. So every 48 hours, you're publishing a blog post to your peers and to the system and about about a topic. So it's not even about learning the concepts. You do learn a lot of concepts around sunk costs and all sorts of stuff. But the point of the Alt MBA is not learning the content. He knows you can learn the content yeah. anywhere. You can Google anything. It's nobody who goes through that program currently ships a blog post every 48 hours for a month. Sure. And if you go through that program, you do. So yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. I didn't realize that's how the program worked. Yeah. So it's more just to push people out to their comfort zone to ship stuff, get it out there into the world. Yeah, I mean there there is structured curriculum and yeah. it's ba- and there's group projects and and everything else, but the the outcome is not. I learned these twelve topics because you can go on HBR, HBR you can go on Google and, and learn all those topics. Anyway, right. Ted, you too. I mean, when I think about when I went through the education system versus what's available today, I spent twelve weeks in a management accounting class that I never used again. Sure. What a waste of twelve weeks of my life, right? Totally. And now you can just pick a thing and you say, if it's important to learn financial statements or to do this, to run your startup, you can do that. And then if you need to go deep, you can go deep, but more likely you probably just need to hire the right person, right? If you're the founder, you probably shouldn't also be doing the accounting. Totally. So you talked a little bit about the crowdfunding stuff you do and you felt people raise a ton of money, over $50 million at this point, right? Yep. So how did you get into that world and how did you, I guess, take us to the first campaign you kind of worked on and, and how that pushed you to continue doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, in Hawaii and the phone rang. It was a friend of a recent client. This was a couple years after I left the Seth program. And I'd helped Sebastian Younger, the author, with with his book launch and his website and stuff like that. And a friend of his PR person reached out and she said, my Kickstarter's live. It's failing. I heard you know the internet. Like this woman, great, <laughs> great lady, but she had like an AOL email address. Yeah. And she, she didn't even... I was not a crowdfunding expert at the time, but I knew marketing and I knew online marketing mm. and social media. And so she reached out and uh, it was a real tearjerker of a film. It was called Gold Star Children, you know, children who've lost parents at war is is that term. And so the the Kickstarter was about a documentary film she was making and she needed about twenty or $30,000 for post-production. Mm. And so I watched that and then helped her promote that campaign in the right military communities, right? Because yeah. who cares about Gold Star Children? The documentary is military families. So, promoted it there, got helped her get funded. Next week I was playing basketball with a friend of mine and he mentioned a friend who was doing a Kickstarter, helped him. And really just one project became two, five, 10, 100, 150. And then, you know, pretty much became the crowdfunding guy. And, and But it's all because good crowdfunding is just good marketing, right? right. Pricing, scarcity, storytelling, urgency, right. all that stuff, all the levers that good marketers know how to turn mm. are there on a crowdfunding page and, and campaign. So just high level, if I have a if I have a new product I'm wanting to launch and I wanted to go crowdfunding, what's kind of the process you would walk me through? Yeah. Find the people that care. I always say the I have good news and bad news, but the bad news is good news. The bad news is 99.9% of people don't care about your crowdfunding thing and <laughs> right. what you're building. So immediately that means don't worry about big press, New York. Don't try to reach everybody. Don't anyone who talks in eyeballs and impressions just run the other way. Hmm. Back to our one, ten, a hundred, a thousand. Most successful crowdfunding projects have a thousand backers or less. And so think of bottom up, not top down. Think of finding the people who care and going from there. So I helped this good example. There was a product named Kittyo, K I T T Y O. It was a tower, a device that you put at your house and it allowed you to, I came up with a tagline for it play with your cat even when you're not home. Mm-hmm. So it's a tower, it's got a camera, it's got a laser, it's got a treat dispenser. It looks kind of like a, robotic kind of lava lamp sure. thing. When the guy came to me, he showed me the high-end 3D rendering of it. It looked beautiful. I said, yeah, this is the kind of thing that 
could succeed on Kickstarter really well if you do the marketing right. Mm. I said, how many emails do you have? And he looked at me kind of funny and he said, two. I was like, two? Did this guy just launch his landing page this morning or what's going on? (laughs) I was like, what do you mean two? And he said, well, I use one for work and one for personal. I was like, no, (laughs) not how many emails do you? Oh, okay, pause, back up, rewind the tape. And he didn't understand, you know, direct marketing or anything. So he was where you were at. So, but he was a phenomenal student. He built a landing page. The first version was was terrible. And so we iterated on the landing page. And I break all this down. If you Google uh, ultimate crowdfunding landing page, or I think even just crowdfunding landing page, it usually comes up number one. But we went through all the iterations and built a page. And then when we promoted it in the right places, like little niche sites like housepanther.com, mm. it converted at 40%. So four out of 10 people who hit that page saw the product, completely understood how the product worked. It was fully explained and raised their hand, four out of 10 people said, I want to know when this thing launches. And over six months, he gathered 13,000 pre-launch opt-in emails of people who saw his thing. And then when he launched, he was fully funded in 36 minutes, 200% funded on the first day, and raised $270,000. So are you spending a lot of paid of paid traffic for this? You're doing a lot of paid marketing? You know, paid is one tactic, and you can. He certainly, he tried different things, and, and paid is one. To me, paid is a shortcut to, if you don't, if you don't have five years to build up trust and permission and things like that, right. then paid is, is a way to find these people, but paid in a very, very focused manner. So he, he was on the view with Whoopi Goldberg, which mm-hmm. is more like, you know, PR yeah. didn't move the needle at all. Really? Didn't matter. Huge eyeballs because one, nobody wakes up in the morning. And is like, I'm going to turn on Whoopi. And I hope yeah. today she tells me about a weird cat toy, <laughs> but right. house Panther, the tagline for this site called house Panther is, the premier online magazine for design-conscious cat people. It's designed within reach for cat freaks. So it gets super specific. And then once you find those little pockets where 99% of the people, sure, then if you want to run Facebook ads to fans of House Panther, you know you're reaching the right people. So paid is one way. You know, there's SEO, there's organic, there's blogging, there's everything else. It all just depends on the mix of how much time you have, what kind of company you're trying to build. Yeah. Are you trying to build a content company? Or are you trying well, with, to... With House Panther, for example, are you buying banner ads or what are you doing actually on House Panther? No, not banner ads. So this is what I call, you know, play with their rules. So we looked at House Panther. We said, what do they do? Every month, House Panther does a product giveaway. Enter your email to win a chance at winning this product. Yeah. So we slid into their content calendar. That is the biggest thing. So this is a really important point. It's subtle, but it's important. When, you're, when you want someone else to talk about you, play the game with their rules. So House Panther's rules were we, every month we do a product giveaway. That means there's somebody's job at House Panther to run the editorial calendar and have a giveaway every month. Hmm. So then Kitty showing up and saying, we would just like to be your November giveaway. How do we make that happen? Now you're doing them a favor versus tugging on their sleeve and saying, please write about us. Right. Another example is I worked with a iPad cooking app called Panna. I won't go into the long story, but essentially it was a cooking app where the best chefs in the world, Mario Batali and stuff, would cook their famous recipes on video with the recipe right next to it and the actual chef cooking the thing. This guy, David Elner, did this whole thing. So I told him, well, you got to get food. There's a million food bloggers. You got to get food bloggers to write about this thing because it's a gorgeous app, beautiful. All these big chefs are involved. But you got to design the win-win. You don't just go to these food bloggers and say, please write about my thing. That's selfish. You go to them and say, how do you create the win-win? Well, the win-win is food bloggers wake up with two problems. They need content for their audience and, you know, they need, they need uh, you know, something interesting to talk about, um, right? They need, they need content and something value for their audience. So you show up on their doorstep and you say, first of all, what do you think about this app? It's gorgeous. It's awesome, right? Yeah, you agree? Cool. Secondly, I'm going to give you lifetime subscription to this. It's normally 15 bucks a month. You get it for free for life if you blog about it. And if you want to blog about it, I'll give you a lifetime subscription to give away to your audience. So now these 500 food bloggers, instead of, again, pulling on their sleeve and saying, hey, please write about my thing, which is the worst. Now you're saying you get one for life and you get one to give away. So now you just solved a problem they have, which is they didn't know what to write about today. Mm. They get to write about it and they get to look like the hero giving away a lifetime subscription and they can run the contest however they want. Love that. You multiply that by 500 food blogs and you're home free. So that's one simple example. He didn't have time to architect all that, but sure. I handed him that tactic. So point is create the win-win and play by their rules. It's interesting because I think a lot of people, and it's such a, I love hearing that because it's such a, like you said, it's very subtle yeah. because a lot of the 
a lot of the marketing tactics, as you know, have over the past five, 10 years have been very like disruptive based, right? Interruption. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like flashing banner ads to oh, get yeah. your attention and all that stuff. So I love the fact that you're thinking about how can I solve their problem today, which will in turn help me. Yeah. That entire industry of banner ads and everything. I mean, there's an entire Madison Avenue, New York and ad tech mm-hmm. industry. It's all bullshit. It's yeah. all complete bullshit. It's impressions and clicks and the people the people who run those industries they don't even want to know how well that marketing is working because it's not right Uh, it's all the real other tactical stuff that um and the strategic and and trust and permission and all the other stuff that's really building the brands nowadays it's about what i call portable stories what are the stories how are people talking about your product when you're not in the room Mm. that's what made yeti a half billion dollar cooler company is because they're like hey my cooler is grizzly proof is yours (laughs) that's the conversation that's happening and Yeah. yeah they put out a a YouTube video that shows a grizzly trying to break into a Yeti. That's just a free YouTube video, right? right. They didn't do banner ads to say, buy the grizzly proof cooler. Yeah, like exactly. nobody parrots your tagline. Nobody says like, oh, you use a Mac too. Doesn't it help you think different, Rob? <laughs> no, nobody says that, right? right but right. You, you have to know what are they saying about your, your company when you're not in the room. And if you don't know those portable stories, you know, banner ads are not going to save you. So true. And I think there's a big shift going away from that because like you said, mm-hmm. it's all kind of bullshit and it's going to more storytelling and value-based marketing, right? Yeah, it's it's all storytelling. And, and again, it comes down to, like Seth said, like the people like us do things like this. Even right outside this door, right? There are restaurants that you and I would never eat at that yeah. other people do eat at, right? So it's like, find your people. There's a great Timothy Leary quote, find the others, right? And, and that there's a lot of marketing wisdom in that. Just find the others and ignore everyone else. Mm-hmm. And when you start getting into worlds of of banner ads and mass media buying and everything else, you're literally saying, I'm too lazy to even think about who my customers are. I'm just going to blast everyone and it doesn't work. Yep. So we talked a little bit about getting outside of your comfort zone, Mm -hmm. getting comfortable, being uncomfortable. What's the last thing that you've done on recent memory that's pushed you outside your comfort zone? Yeah. A couple weeks ago, I was in Austin with some other entrepreneurs and it was a guy's weekend. It was kind of half fun, half masterminding, Mm -hmm. sitting around, uh, you know, play, playing cards and stuff like that. And then we helped each other with some business stuff. And then we brought in a Wim Hof instructor, this young woman from Colorado, and she filled up a little kiddie pool with 800 pounds of ice. And, uh, and we did Wim Hof breathing. <laughs> <Sounds> terrible. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was the ultimate, like, you know, getting, getting yeah. comfortable, getting uncomfortable. We did a bunch of breathing exercises. So it was kind of funny. It was this this young woman leading, you know, a guy's weekend of dudes sitting on yoga pillows and like, you know, doing this breathing exercise and stuff like that. And then getting in this, in this thing and completely under the ice and staying in there as long as you can. So, you know, 12, 12 guys sitting around and it was, it was hard, you know, breathing heavy and stuff like that. So that was, that was a couple of weeks ago, but yeah, I try to, I try to do one thing a week that I've never done before. One thing I'm working on right now is I have a file on my phone and my computer of, uh, open my comedy bets. I was just talking to the buddy yesterday, Michael O'Neill. We're both working on, you know, five minute open mic set because I, I do speaking, but when yeah. I go on stage, I know I know what I'm talking about when it comes to marketing and crowdfunding and things like yeah. that. So that's, if it's a talk I've given a number of times, there's not a lot of nerves, mm-hmm. um, but I've never, ever, ever done comedy. And I love the concept of, the, the, I wanted to do it to make me a better speaker but also just to get comfortable being uncomfortable and like it doesn't matter what level you get to at comedy. There's a great documentary called comedian that Jerry Seinfeld did. doesn't matter what level you get to. It's still hard. And people are basically sitting there saying, make me laugh, you know? And so it's that like, and I can't think of anything more <laughs> nerve wracking and, and uncomfortable than doing that. So I did the ice bath recently, but my next uh, experiment is going to be some, some open mic comedy and try to make them laugh and get uncomfortable. It's funny. Cause our mutual friend James Altstra, I was talking mm-hmm. to him and he, he's done one stand-up routine before, mm-hmm. but the day, two days after I interviewed him, he was going to go doing, he was doing his second stand-up routine and, uh, in New York. Oh, nice. And he's like, the first one, I crushed it, Yeah. but it was all like friends and family. So, right, <laughs> so of right. course I crushed it. But yeah. He's like, the second one, I'm going into a hostile crowd. So mm-hmm. I'm curious to find out how it went because it's already happened. I went just, just right down the street here to uh, Madhouse the other night just to see, because I love comedy, watch it online. I don't watch a lot of TV, but I'll watch you know Netflix comedy specials and YouTube old stuff. Um, and I went to some live comedy here on Tuesday. The main set, were you know seasoned comedians who've been doing it a while i wouldn't say they were great yeah the open mic afterwards everyone left and so there was a table of four dudes 
me mm. and then all these other open mic guys and they were not very good but context matters like you said about james in that yeah. room even if they killed even if their jokes were hilarious they had one table of four guys who were kind of paying attention and me and everyone else in the room was a different comic who was trying to write their own open right. mic set go out so context matters a lot. And if I did it again, yeah, I don't think I wouldn't bring 20 <laughs> friends to make sure. Because laughter is, right. is you know, snowballs, you know. Oh, it's, it does. Context matters Contagious. a lot. And uh, it was just crickets. And I felt so bad for these guys. <laughs> they were up there just hanging themselves. So we've talked a lot about failure. And obviously, you know, I've, I've, just on the com- mm-hmm. topic of comedy, a lot of people say, you can go bomb, you won't die. It, oh, won't, yeah. it won't kill you. Right. Right. Might kill your spirit for a little bit, but yeah. you're not. You're physically going to be okay. Yeah, like you'll see another day. If you had to really boil it down, what's failure mean to you? It's an opportunity. Failure is nothing more than an opportunity to to try the next thing. And I always look at life trying to figure out how can I make the failures less fatal. Right. Mm-hmm. So many. First of all, most failures are not fatal. Most failures are smaller than we think. It's kind of funny when you talk about the comedy thing. What are we most concerned about when we do a speaking gig, when we do a toast at a wedding, when we stand up and do anything that puts ourselves out there? What's our brain telling us? Oh, they're going to laugh at you. Right. (laughs) With comedy, it's like that's the whole point. So (laughs) one of of the two has to be easy, right? But they never do laugh at you and you never do, you know, fall off the stage and things like that. So, yeah, I think failure is an opportunity. I wrote a blog post a long time ago called Fear as a Signal. And I grew up in Wisconsin where we have ice fishing and then these tip-ups, these flags, they go up when you have a fish and it's, you know, freezing. And uh, I think fear is, should be a signal that the project is worth doing. Mm. When you feel that in your gut, when you're scared, when you're like, gosh, I don't know, is this, this might not work, it, it, this could fail, that's probably a signal that it's, it's worth pursuing. Yeah. Because if there's not those butterflies in your stomach, or if you're just headstrong, you're like, no matter what, this is going to work, yeah. uh, it has no chance of failure, well, then it has no chance of success either. Mm. I like that. So what's next on the horizon for you? What are you What are you most excited about that you're working on? Speaking of uh, speaking, oh, yeah, and, we uh, talked about this. You've got a big one coming up. Yeah, ten thousand people on Tuesday and ten thousand people on Friday, and end of June, um, speaking to the largest audience I've ever spoken to, kind of by an order of magnitude. I think I've done maybe two thousand people before, and this is ten thousand. So five X. Five X the largest. Yeah, big hockey stadium west of Boston. So working on that speech uh, pretty hard because definitely have to nail that one. So. That's looming on the horizon right before that and going to Ireland with uh, Philip McKernan and some other friends mm. for kind of a guys slash golf trip. So that'll be a nice uh, chance to unplug. But I'm launching a new uh, kind of high-end sort of mastermind coaching program later this year called Clarity and Growth. It's like all the all the stuff I teach in the realm of marketing mm. for kind of more successful higher-end entrepreneurs. It's, you know, not not an inexpensive uh, program, but I'm, I'm really excited to get a group of people together to work through and improve their marketing kind of in, in a small group format, you know, 10, 20 people. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So obviously being the fill on podcast, I want you to leave us with a challenge, if you will, that, that the listeners and myself can actually go out, do yeah. and come back and report, report the results. So yeah. Yeah. Lay it, Absolutely. Lay it out there. I would say come up with, and it can be different for everyone. I'm not going to tell you to, you know, go into a Starbucks and ask for a discount or anything like that. I want you to create, a micro failure. And when, you, when you're doing your weekly planning, when you're doing your weekly to-do list, so much of our to-do lists are, I need to do this thing. I need to respond to this email. I need to do whatever. I want you to write down what you're going to fail at or what you failed at last week. Mm-hmm. What, what basically document your failures. I think entrepreneurs should do this. I think people in big companies should do this too. Yeah. I think every meeting in every big company, there should be a status report and there should be a line item for micro failures what did you fail at this week, Rob? And and report that back and, and tell people, I think big companies should do this at Accenture because if you didn't fail at anything, you probably weren't trying hard enough, right? One of the most inspirational talks I heard when I was at Accenture, this guy, uh, one of our clients actually came in and said, you guys are so safe. You're good. That's why we hire you. That's why we pay you a ton of money, but you're going too slow. Mm-hmm. He said, if you guys don't start making mistakes and failing a little bit, he goes, imagine you're busting tables really fast. He said, I want a couple glasses to break every night. Mm. Otherwise, you're going too slow. And that was a really good, I, can, I think, visual metaphor. And we need to break some more glasses because then you just sweep it up and move on and buy another glass. Like so um, at, the, at the end of every week, look back at the week before and just write down, what did I fail at? Mm. And then, you know, report back. It's not one specific challenge, yeah. but document your failures. Because yeah. if you go 
a couple weeks without failing in anything. And that failure should have that uncomfortable feeling, right? I'm going to go bomb on the stage. The your stomach where it's just like, oh. Just something where it's like, oh man, that sucked. And yeah. then you realize the next day it's okay. So it could be, it could be a failed sales call. Mm. It's got to have what I call collision with the market, meaning you can't do it with the door closed on your computer. You can't sit in the studio and fail and say, yep. oh, I tried to build a landing page and I misspelled a word. That's not a failure. Got it. It's got to have collision with the market, meaning a sales call. You stand up on stage and bomb your comedy yeah. set like I'm going to. Um, you know, <laughs> you got to have a collision with, with a market or a stranger. Love it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the time. and I want to respect it. And I know you got to get out of here. So yeah, awesome. thanks so much, Clay. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. All right. So you can find Clay at Clay Abear on Twitter. That's at Clay Abear. And of course, that spelling, along with the links and resources Clay and I discussed, including more information on his marketing strategies and crowdfunding resources, can be found at the page we created especially for this episode. That'll be at failon.com slash 027. And next week, we are sitting down with my good friend, Michael Gebbin. Michael bypassed college and started his own production company, gebstv.com, at the age of 19. Since starting that first business, he's done video production for weddings and events all over the world and film work for many, many successful entrepreneurs, including big, big names like Richard Branson, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Pat Flynn, Lewis Howes, Derek Halpern, and many others. And in this episode, Michael is going to share his start in the video industry and how he actually leveraged doing free work for people and how he actually landed his first filming gig for Tim Ferriss. It's a great story. Don't miss it. And if the podcast has the wheels turning, please email me at rob at failon.com and let me know what your biggest struggle is in getting started in business or actually breaking through to the next level. And as I continue to build Failon with the goal of helping you achieve freedom by supporting yourself without a job, I'd be really grateful for just a couple things. Subscribing to the podcast takes a single click and helps the show get found by more people. And when people can find the show, it means it can help more people, which in return means you are helping people by simply subscribing. To subscribe and rate and review the podcast, super easy. Just visit failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.